Welcome to the Legal Download Podcast, a rundown of the latest issues impacting your business from Kelly Dry. This is part of a two-part series on financial remedies and COVID-19. In the first part, we will discuss common legal remedies related to contract performance. In the second part, we will discuss the insurance issues that have arisen in the wake of this public health crisis. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this edition of Legal Download. I am Matt Luzatter, and uh, today we're going to uh, discuss with some of my colleagues here uh, the financial implications in commercial litigation of COVID-19 and some of the remedies that are available and some of the recent litigation uh, now that we are fully in the, I would say, the throes of this, uh, this pandemic hopefully coming out of it right now. Um, so I advise uh, companies in uh, commercial disputes. And since COVID-19 emerged earlier this year, I advise companies on a number of issues related to this crisis. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues who will share their experiences and knowledge on this issue. I would note that this podcast complements our April 1st, 2020 webinar, COVID-19 Financial Remedies. A link to this presentation is going to be on this site, so you can access that if you wanted a more expansive discussion with PowerPoints uh, to, to look at there. So uh, first off, I've got Neil Merkel. He's represented clients in commercial litigation and arbitrations for over 30 years. He's counseled clients through insurance disputes that range from millions to over a billion dollars. Neil is based out of Kelly Dry's New York office, but handles cases nationwide. As you'll hear today, Neil carefully tracks legislative developments that impact our clients. Cameron Argetsinger is a true insurance coverage attorney. Based out of Kelly Dry's D.C. office, Cameron has represented corporate policyholders in a broad range of insurance coverage disputes, including coverage claims related to COVID-19. Cameron will share with us today his deep knowledge of insurance policies and the lessons that he's learned over the past few months as the COVID-19 pandemic has evolved. So, Guys, we've got a, uh, a, a number of different, uh, different avenues that, uh, that, that COVID-19 has, has taken. Um, do we, let's, uh, let's, let's first discuss some of the, uh, some of the areas of, of litigation that this, is, uh, this has arisen, arisen in. Yeah, Matt, last time uh, during our call in April, you gave us a really good rundown on the force majeure issues and uh, contract responsibility and risk shifting in, in light of these things. It's now been almost two months. Uh, what have you seen in the litigation landscape that's actually been filed since that time? Well, there's some of the higher profile cases that uh, covered in the news, such as challenges to government orders. Um, certainly been uh, a number of wrongful death cases that have been filed, a uh, number of fraud cases in the criminal realm. We're not really going to talk about those today. Uh, we're not going to talk about the employment law cases that have arisen. Um, what we are going to talk about here are the insurance claims and, and commercial disputes, which we've seen a few of. And I think that here, one of the, uh, one of the things that to keep in mind is that the understanding of these issues is important even if you aren't going to actually be filing litigation. Because what I've seen in my practice is negotiations between contracting parties, perhaps parties that have a long-term business relationship, that even if you know the, the, this COVID-19 crisis has affected their ability to perform under the contract, no one's really going to the mattresses, so to speak, um, with these relationships. So they are, they are working with each other, but certainly the interpretation of the law 
is playing into the solutions that the, the parties are reaching. So um, let's, let's talk about this. Um, uh, Neil, you've asked me what uh, types of litigation have arisen out of uh, the wake of COVID-19. And the types of litigation that, uh, that we've seen arise are obviously the highly publicized court cases, such as challenges to government orders. Um, there's been some wrongful death cases. There's certainly been fraud uh, around some of the government programs. We've seen you know, hundreds of millions of dollars stolen. Uh, we're not going to discuss those cases today. Uh, what we're going to discuss are the, the commercial litigation cases and the insurance coverage cases. And we've seen a number of them filed. I, you know, I've been tracking it since we last did our webinar on April 1st. There have been a good, let's say about 12 notable cases that I've, that I've followed. And those are across a variety of different industries. Most of them are around payment obligations. These are tenants that can't pay their rent. In fact, today in, in the news in Chicago, one of the large law firms here uh, was sued by their landlord for back rent to the tune of, I think, $3.4 million, somewhere around there. Uh, the law firm has said that they have defenses under their contract, um, which to me, and I've, I've looked at the complaint, I don't have any idea what the uh, defenses are going to be to the complaint, but I'm guessing by the language used that those are going to be uh, similar to uh, force majeure clauses there. The other type of cases that we've seen filed are ones where parties have failed to close deals. Um, either there's one down in the Southern District of Texas uh, trying to force through the sale of a chain of cinemas, uh, obviously with uh, social distancing and some of the economic shutdown, though the value of those cinemas was you know, not what it was when the parties entered into the agreement. Uh, and so we've seen those sorts of litigations where uh, either a party is trying to force the closure of a sale Perhaps the, the buyer doesn't have their financing or the financing's been withdrawn given the current situation, um, or the, uh, the, 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 the buyer, uh, you know, they, they no longer want to, to be part of the deal. Matt, focusing on commercial disputes, how do courts traditionally apply a force majeure clause? That's a good question, Cameron. And, the traditional way that force majeure clauses are applied, and this is going to sound like sort of a, a silly answer, but it's as written. Um, it's going to vary across courts on how they interpret them. Courts in, let's say, New York, uh, Illinois, and California interpret those clauses very narrowly, meaning that if you don't have an event that's enumerated in that force majeure clause or at least an event that's very similar to it, the courts will often find that that clause does not provide a defense to performance underneath the, the contract there. So one of the things that you have to do when you're looking at a force majeure clause is you really have to break it down into its parts. Um, looking at force majeure itself, you know, it's something that could not have reasonably been foreseen, something that's beyond the party's control, and so that the parties cannot have prevented the consequences of. So in other words, it's, it's an event that is, is the prototypical force majeure clauses. 
let's say an act of God, right? And we have things like pandemics that are sometimes listed, sometimes they're not. That's a that's a a, a point of contention in these uh, in these lawsuits. And now, given the current situation um, in, in the country, unfortunately, is we're also having to look to see what affect public disturbances um, have, you know, if they're listed in a, in a force majeure clause. So it, it essentially what you're going to look for is you're going to look for which events are listed in your force majeure clause. Then sometimes there's a catch-all phrase that may be something like, you know, all other events beyond the control of the parties, right? And you may argue that, um, let's say you didn't have pandemic listed in your force majeure clause, you may argue that that catch-all phrase um, captures it, that pandemic, COVID-19, would be included. Then you have to look for the standard for the application, right? Is it that the party's performance is impossible? Is it hindered, prevented, delayed? We can talk about that a little bit later in terms of you know how that affects performance under the contract uh, and how a court's going to look at it. Um, then you also have to look at the effect of the clause, right? Do you get to cancel the contract? You know, is your performance of certain aspects excused? Are you able to delay performance on it? And then, you know, and this is very important, and Cameron, you'll appreciate this from the insurance context, is that notification section, right? Do you need to let this, the, your counterparty know in a certain way how you are going to be able to perform or not perform underneath the contract. Sometimes an email isn't sufficient. A telephone call is not sufficient. Sometimes it's sending something via, you know, registered mail to somebody. And that's something that just depends based on the specific terms of your contract, right? That is correct. So I, I see the term act of God when I see these force majeure clauses a lot. Is COVID-19 something that's going to fall into that category? <laughs> Cameron, I will give you the lawyerly answer of it depends. And what, what it's going to come down to is the argument of whether or not it was foreseeable. So in discovery, the other party you know, that's seeking to enforce the contract um, against the, uh, the party that's exercising the force majeure clause, claiming that the COVID-19 is an act of God, they may want to look to see how did they address uh, issues for an H1N1, um, our last pandemic, uh, and, and was this really foreseeable? So it's, it's up in the air. We're going to get, I think, inconsistent. In fact, I guarantee we're going to get inconsistent opinions from uh, different courts on, on this. Um, it really depends on which, which side of it uh, you're, you're going to take on whether or not this is, a, uh, this is an act of God. Are we starting to see any court decisions on this yet, or is it too early? You know, the interesting thing is, is for all the cases that I've read that have been filed in the, in the past couple of months, the only ones that we have decisions on right now are the injunction cases. And most of those cases are decided on the grounds on whether or not an injunction should be granted. So we don't have any real definitive cases on whether or not COVID-19 is an act of God. What we do have, though, are some determinations based around some other aspects of that force majeure clause. Because remember that it's not just the pandemic itself that you have to look at. You can also look at the attendant government orders, the um, stay-at-home orders, shelter-in-place orders, the business closure orders. All of those things will bear on whether or not the party can perform 
uh, under the contract, in addition with the penalties uh, that are sometimes associated with these uh, government orders, sometimes there is, there's the defense of illegality that comes up as well on those. So um, the, the injunction cases that we've seen uh, on this have mostly been around the payment side of things that the courts have held in those cases that an injunction is not proper um, on those cases because the banks remain open. You're still able to pay your rent um, to your, your landlord on this stuff. So that's where we've seen those cases come down. But uh, I think it'll be a few, you know, it could be even years. We all know how long litigation can take before we end up with some real definitive answers around this. Now, what about cases where COVID hasn't made it impossible for a party to perform, but it's made it really difficult or just very expensive or much more cumbersome than the parties anticipated when they contracted? Is, is financial difficulty by itself a force majeure event? No, it's not. Um, I'm not aware of any case that uh, has held that financial difficulty uh, is in of itself a, a force majeure event. Now, some, sometimes the contracting parties have been very careful, and they've specifically excluded the payment um, obligations in a contract from the force majeure event. But as I said, you know, barring banks being closed and you know, folks being able to uh, you know, transfer money around, uh, it's not a, not a force majeure event. And so if it's not a force majeure event or, or say maybe your contract doesn't have a force majeure provision, uh, are there other common law remedies, common law um, defenses to performance of a contract uh, that you might be able to use if things become hard to do or, or harder or impossible to perform because of COVID? You know, that is a very good point because there are, there are common law remedies and they're going to vary state to state what's available, but there's doctrines such as frustration of purpose, impossibility, impracticability that run along the same lines as a force majeure clause in a contract. Now I will point out that in a number of jurisdictions, in fact, I believe most jurisdictions, if you have a force majeure clause in your contract, you are unable to avail yourself, if you are the defaulting party, of the common law remedies that are available where the court's going to look at your contract and say, you have that force majeure clause there. Let's follow that. Um, but the equitable defenses, let's say, of your common law defenses of impossibility, impracticability are going to run along the same lines as your force majeure clause, where you're going to look at, you know, the actual mechanics of performance. And that's what makes these cases such a fact-specific inquiry. I have a related question. In the Seventh Circuit, there's this efficient breach theory that we hear about a lot. What is that yes. factor in here? Efficient breach is actually a very good doctrine for companies to look at. And it, it, it occurs in, in, in basically two scenarios. And before I get into those two scenarios, essentially efficient breach is where you know, with you know, your help of your legal advisors and your business folks, you know what the cost of breaching the contract is going to be. And so companies may make the decision 
that we're going to go ahead and breach this contract and accept the damages. Now, when you see this happening, it happens one of two ways. And one end of the scale is when a seller has entered into a contract to, let's say, sell widgets uh, to company A, and company B comes along and says, I'll pay you three times what company A was going to pay you for those widgets. And look, in, in, in this time of, of you know, public health crisis right now, it is there's some competing, uh, you know, lots of competition for scarce resources. And so it's possible that, that the seller may say, you know what, I am going to breach my contract with company A so I can sell these widgets at a better price to company B. So that's the sort of the catbird seat for uh, for the seller to be in. On the other side of it is where you have um, an efficient breach because the cost of, of performing under the contract is going to exceed the value of the contract. Um, and again, in the situation we're in where perhaps resources are not available from uh, traditional channels, they're more expensive from somewhere else. Let's say you're going to you know, assemble a piece of machinery and this one component um, that was available from China, the cost has now risen you know, 400% because you have to source it from another country. Um, that's where the um, company that is, is constructing the machine may say, look, I'm just going to breach this contract because it's going to cost me more money to perform under it than it would if I just said, you know, I, I'm sorry, I can't. Let's do your the damages calculation here. So that's essentially what the uh, doctrine of efficient breach is. And it is certainly something that companies can consider. It needs to be discussed with like the board of directors to make sure that they're exercising their fiduciary duties. There's some other mechanisms, some moving parts, but it's recognized, you know, as, as you pointed out in the Seventh Circuit, it's also recognized by the Delaware courts and a number of other courts that have discussed that, uh, the efficient breach theory as it's known. Matt, it, can a company uh, just wait until the pandemic's over and, and then attempt to force their counterparty to perform the contract once, once it ends? That's a, that's a good question. And what that comes down to is the language of the actual contract is does the force majeure clause does it provide for cancellation of the contract? In which case, the answer would be no. It it doesn't matter. You know, is there a time element that's in the contract? The must perform by this date. I mean, there usually is. Or is there a force majeure clause that says a party may delay its performance uh, if one of these events occurs? Um, in that case, yeah, you would have to perform after the force majeure event has passed. So this is going to come down to that analysis of. Uh, the, the specific language of the uh, of the contract itself and the circumstances surrounding performance, because courts will often look in these cases to see what efforts has the party taken to perform, what other avenues have they explored before they say, "I'm exercising the force majeure clause. Let me out of my obligation." Any considerations for drafting contracts during the pandemic? Things we should be doing or not doing. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, I think now it's pandemics are, are foreseeable, right? I mean, we've, we've had ones in the past. And as we discussed when, you know, we were talking about whether or not you can consider COVID-19 an act of God, you know, we've had SARS, MERS, 
uh, H1N1 uh, was was the last one that we had. Um, and and now with this, you know, this scale, this magnitude of this pandemic, I think that they're going to be, you know, absolutely foreseeable. Now, as you're drafting contracts during this time, you want to think through all of the business considerations, you know, with the, your operations and your logistics and tie in specific things that may excuse your performance, such as if certain government uh, restrictions remain in place for your for the businesses um, that you're that you're dealing with. You may want to, and I would, would urge folks that are that are uh, you know drafting contracts that are going to be performed, you know, in the next six months, specifically consider specifically name COVID nineteen in that force majeure provision uh, to ensure that that uh, you have those uh, those those contractual uh, protections in place. And look, we're not being sneaky here. Parties like contracts because it gives us certainty as to the risk allocation. And if you're having an upfront discussion with, the, with your counterparty on the contract, it, it's just natural that you would want to consider what the, uh, the, the current situation is. And, and frankly, you know, not knowing how long this is going to last, putting in some safety valves in there. Um, that the parties can agree on would would you know excuse performance if let's say there was a uh, a resurgence in the number of cases and um, stay at home wars were, were put in place again. So it's 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 really one of these uh, these situations where um, reasonable minds um, will certainly differ on it, but they can also meet. Um, so so businesses can move uh, move forward with their relationships. And we may have already touched on this, but what are some of the outcomes of recent force majeure defenses? So the stage that many of these litigations are in right now is the complaint stage. Um, the performance issues, many of these obligations that I've seen in the, in the cases that I've read, became due in April. Um, perhaps you know, many of them became due in May. So we haven't even seen the answer to some of these complaints, um, but we have seen in the injunction stage that that is a, I'm, I'm going to say it's a riskier propos- litigation proposition uh, to move forward with the injunctions. I haven't seen any injunctions granted um, that, are, that, that, that point to the uh, event itself, the COVID-19 um, in, in issuing the injunction, it's mostly around sort of the, the legal mechanism of the injunction, such as that the damages are too speculative, uh, for the court, uh, to, to enter an injunction. Uh, some of them are that the, you know, they're not going to force a mortgage company to fund, uh, during the, uh, during the, the, the curtain, this, the current crisis, um, because the, uh, the there was an out in the contract that was unrelated to COVID nineteen that the the buyer that was uh, obtaining the mortgage didn't complete some other um, uh, other steps that they were supposed to so we're seeing some uh, varied opinions on it but we don't have any definitive answers Cameron Neal thank you for joining me on this edition of the Legal Download. Thank Thank you, you. Matt. It was a pleasure. For additional information on this and other topics, 
please visit kellydry.com. Kelly Dry has podcasts available through your podcast provider.